The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the producer and those appearing in this show and do not necessarily represent the views of Dairy Cam, the town of Dairy, or any of its staff or affiliates. I can't help but feel good. I can't help but feel fine. Everything is in its place and all of it is mine. My name is Tom Dunneman, and I'm here with my co-host, Gail Brenna, author of The Fruit You'll Never See. We want to welcome you to our show, All Things Recovery. Here, we discuss all topics regarding mental health, substance abuse, treatment options, and the mental health system itself. We cover these topics by inviting guests from all facets of recovery, treatment, enforcement, and policy. The door is wide open, and we want to be a resource. We take topic suggestions and feedback. This show is always dedicated to my friend and recovery warrior, Craig Barnaby, who dedicated his life to the well-being of others. Today we have our guest is Tony O'Shaughnessy. He is business development for a treatment center called Granite Recovery or uh, Green Mountain Treatment Center. Tony, welcome to our show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about you and who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So, uh, yep, thank you for having me. And just want to apologize in advance. My voice is especially raspy today. I'll, I'll do my best. But, um, you know, I grew up here in, in southern New Hampshire in Manchester and, and still reside in Manchester. Uh, but currently, I'm a business development representative for Granite Recovery Centers. And in that role, I'm responsible for essentially uh, community outreach. So I'm in my vehicle day to day traveling around southern New Hampshire and Vermont as well, um, stopping into hospitals, working with social workers, individual therapists in private practice, other treatment centers, and uh, my job day to day is to spread the good word about Granite Recovery Centers, uh, what we do in terms of um, the clinical treatment we provide, and then spend uh, most of my day helping individuals access treatment, get into treatment, whether it's at Granite Recovery or elsewhere. Um, and, and how I got here. So, yeah. you know, growing up in Southern New Hampshire, uh, always kind of knew that I was a little different from my peers, just in the sense that weekends would come as a 16 year old. And, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily satisfied unless we were uh, drinking or, or using other substances. That was a real priority from, for me, even um, as an adolescent. And even at the time it was concerning, I'm not surprised that eventually I, you know, uh, needed to get into treatment myself, and, and now I'm in long-term recovery, but that's really where it began. Um, you know, I held several jobs in education. Uh, after graduating from college, I've taught. I've taught in the public school system. I've worked in the energy industry. Um, and, and long story short, I managed to work all while uh, in active addiction. When did you come into recovery? How old were you? So initially introduced, or my first time in treatment was 2012. Okay. Yep. Yep. July of 2012, although I'd had an opportunity to get help uh, long before that, several years before that, a couple family interventions, and at that time I was very resistant. Didn't think it's I needed It's good to it. have family that right. cares enough to do the intervention, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Did you get on the first shot? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. Did um, any of us get it on the first shot? Um, did you? I, I actually did. did. Yeah, I have, okay. knock on wood, I have not relapsed. I don't know if that's wow. wood, but. Yeah, plastic, whatever it is. <laughs> that's a, that's a, but that's rare. 
Very rare. But I also, yeah. too... Um, oh, you had a outside in influences that required you to... Yes. Yeah. And I also, too, um, didn't go into detox, which I don't recommend, which was a, clearly a, could be deadly. And I don't want anybody to go through... I, and shake and shimmy like I did at home. It's not appropriate and it's not healthy. So, so, so did you, or, I mean, I guess you would know, get into this field because of your own experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I remember being in treatment. I was struggling, um, a lot of cravings, still a desire to feel different. But we went around as a group and, and said, what are our goals? What do we want to do? And other people wanted to run their parents' business or you know, uh, whatever career goals they mine, I remember saying, I want to help people and I want to work in this field. Um, so when I graduated or completed uh, the last treatment program I went to in 2014, I kept my eyes open for opportunities. I'd worked in admissions um, in education. So there was an admissions opportunity at Farnham Center in Manchester, and that's where I'd gotten uh, clean and sober the last time. So. Um, I reached out. I've dropped a few people off at the center. Yeah, it's um, well. There's some people that say they want to help people, Tony, and to say and and for you to actually jump in and do it. And what do you get out of helping people? I mean, that's a. It sounds like an. It sounds like an easy question, but yeah, I think everybody answers it differently. I think for me, um, I've always been a helper. Um, I really just enjoy connecting people to good services. Um, for me, it, it is very fulfilling. Even when I worked in education, I would always go the extra mile to help a student connect with his teacher or whatever the case is. And so that translated pretty nicely into um, you know, working in treatment and, and recovery because I'd get calls. Um, people did not know how to understand how to navigate the, the treatment industry, how do I get help, and... There's a lot to navigate. Yeah, there are it's, it's a ridiculous amount to yeah. navigate. It's like red tape. That's how yeah. it feels all the time. Yeah. Always, yeah. yeah. We're not even talking dealing with insurance companies. And, Across the board. Right. Yeah, and if, you, and if you're compromised and don't have the ability to focus on anything, forget about navigating that system. And the one thing, Tony, when I met you, one thing I really appreciate that you, first of all, it's obvious you care about people. Mm. But I like the fact that, you know, if you couldn't get someone into Granite Recovery, which is a great program, you helped them get into other programs. Oh, I would go to just about any lengths to help someone. In fact, I got a call yesterday. We don't have adolescent treatment. We certainly don't have primary mental health treatment, and we, and we definitely don't treat eating disorders in any of our programs. Mild, mild eating disorders, but got a call out of Vermont. Um, from a fellow whose daughter's really struggling with a feeding tube and mental health and, and an active, very severe ED. Um, nothing to do with any of the work that I do, but I reached out to multiple people in my network and told them, let me know, I'll do whatever it takes to help you find uh, a good treatment option and to help this, this kid, she needs help. Yeah. So Granite Recovery has a couple different campuses and I know it's, it's, it's a, one of the biggest treatment centers in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. but maybe tell people about where you're at and what each different site does. Well, so is your, your you work for Granite? Yep, Granite Recovery okay. Centers is um, kind of the, the parent company, and underneath Granite Recovery Centers are five individual uh, residential treatment programs. 
included are uh, right here in Derry, the Granite House, where we have 42 beds and help. It's a residential program for individuals with New Hampshire Medicaid. Um, we have a program in Salem. It's around 100 clients. It's a step down from residential. So people who, with New Hampshire Medicaid who complete the residential program in Derry for 30 days can go to this program in Salem called New Freedom Academy uh, and stay for an additional 60 days. So these you know, folks really um, largely you know, unemployed and they're on New Hampshire Medicaid. They don't have the means to get food or housing. They have housing and food for, for, for three months and then we help them to establish safe, How do you help them? supportive housing. Well, we connect them with the Doorway Program, um, New Hampshire. So, so there's that's another program. I don't, yeah, I don't know anything about it. The Doorway it. is uh, created through the SOAR funding, the, the State Opioid Response Program. So mm -hmm. anybody coming out of a treatment setting who is unhoused and needs uh, help, they'll essentially cover the first month of rent in a sober house, which will give people an opportunity to get on their feet, get their own job so that they can afford the rent. They're like that. The doorways are like those access points that remember <laughs> safe station in New Hampshire was to fire departments, which became, you know, they started this program, which was awesome and effective, but it became too much for the fire departments to handle because right. They weren't trained. they have another job to do. That's... Yeah. <laughs> so then they ended up creating the doors. I actually managed the Concord one. Oh, okay. But it was incredible because people would, anybody could come in. They yep. walk in off the street, say, I need help. Uh, they would see a therapist. they get an assessment. And then they would actually um, get them insurance right away, get yep. them on Medicaid. I forget what they call it, but they get them on. Presumptive eligibility. Presumptive eligibility. Yep, get them Medicaid insurance. And then they'd call someone like Granite say, hey, do you have a bed and yep. work to... Yeah. Presumptive el eligibility makes sense because why would somebody say that if they weren't really, if they didn't really need help, right? Yeah, so, right. Yeah, that's... Yeah, and so even if you don't have active insurance and you think, you know, you can't access help, call me, call, show up to one of these doorway walk-in centers. Literally, they'll get you signed up for presumptive eligibility. Your Medicaid isn't technically active yet, but you can admit that same day. So a really accessible healthcare. And that's the cool thing. What it means is, so say you weren't eligible, but yet you were using, you would immediately, like, like Tony said, you would immediately get access. Get treatment. Yeah. And then, then they would almost like worry about it kind of well they worry about that then they look at it more yeah. deeply within a month or so yeah, exactly. so you can get a month of treatment under your belt and then you know the rest is sorted out right. it's it a good place to start it is a good place. so i interrupted you no uh, that's you're talking about the five different yeah. companies underneath the umbrella company of, of yes yeah so in the southern part of the state we um we've got roughly 150 beds for individuals with new hampshire medicaid and then um, you're saying glo globally, all all different companies, 150 beds together combined. So Granite Recoveries has a total of roughly 450 wow. um, treatment beds. 150 or so are specifically for individuals with New Hampshire Medicaid. Oh, okay. And then at two programs, we have three separate programs. Uh, where we're treating individuals with private insurance. We're in network with every major insurance carrier in New England. So again, very low cost, high quality healthcare. Um, anybody who's out there uh, working for a living um, has access to, to treatment with us um, and has insurance through an employer or the marketplace. Um, in Canterbury, we just opened and got licensed for open New Hampshire's first and only residential primary mental health program. 
before you talk about that, which I really want to hear about, and, and this might be a question you don't necessarily want to answer, but are there two different um, treatment, um, well, are the houses different or are the, are the facilities different for people who are on mass health and people who have private insurance? Truthfully, no. Um, I, I'm sorry, not Medicaid. No, no, but it's Medicaid, right, Medicaid. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so the curriculums are consistent and repeatable across all programs, regardless of your insurance. So they're really delivering the exact same clinical program. Um, so one day you have New Hampshire Medicaid, you go out, get into sober living, get a job, get insurance to your employer, you have a relapse, you go to one of our private insurance programs, you're going to experience the exact same um, clinical program. The accommodations are very, very similar. I mean, um, larger operational budgets when you're dealing with folks who have private insurance, so they may have additional resources that the, the folks in Medicaid programs don't have. But um, I, what, what would an example of that be? Um, I'm just you curious. Know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. Question. Wait, a weight room, for example. Really? Yeah, yeah. At, the, at the private insurance facility. Wouldn't it be nice if yeah. everybody had that yeah. option, right? Yeah. Because that's... Well, one of the other places I worked at, they had the weight room, and it was only reserved for the veterans because they got more money. But to support that right. is really what it was. Yeah. Just kinda... So, but, well, well, the argument I had was, okay, so we have this wonderful weight room. Why can't the other clients go up one day mm -hmm. a week? I'll even supervise it. Yeah. Go up one day a week, but it was always... A money thing. Well, it's not just money, too. It's liability, too. There's always a liability thing. But something to keep in, right. something to keep in mind, so yeah. there are a couple reasons why we, why we separate the, the payer mix. So number one, when you have programs that combine both Medicaid and individuals with private insurance in the same program, you'll find that someone with New Hampshire Medicaid will call and say, oh, we don't have a bed today. They may very well have a bed, they're saving it for somebody with private insurance. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a wait list for the individuals right. with Medicaid, whereas we've separated the payer mix, we don't have wait lists. You have New Hampshire Medicaid, you get in that day. Additionally, there's frequently folks with New Hampshire Medicaid versus individuals with private insurance experience very different psychosocial stressors. And so, um, where individuals with Medicaid frequently chronically unemployed, there's a, unemployed, there's a large population who are incarcerated, you know, we're dealing with public defenders, um, there's a yeah. whole host of psychosocial issues, the, the, they're unhoused, and then somebody with private insurance, now you're dealing with a private attorney, you're dealing with, can they pay their mortgage, I need to sign up for FMLA, those case management issues are very different and clinically not always appropriate to have the populations combined. Yes, they all have an addiction. They're all struggling with mental health issues. So you're talking about the aftercare being different. Yeah, exactly, right. So that planning. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so we've got the primary mental health program, first and only here in New Hampshire, um, in Canterbury, treating psychotic disorders, personality disorders, um, anxiety disorders, including PTSD, and then mood disorders. So a lot of folks with you know major depression, experiencing suicidal thinking, don't necessarily have a plan or intent, but right. they're in crisis, they need help. These are people just like me and you, they're working every day and, and they're just really struggling. Um, so I, I'll, yep. well, before the show, we talked about, um, well, you did talk about that a little bit, but we talked about what treatments are available because as, as you know, as I told you, I do, I'm doing yeah. civil commitments now and mental health 
clients and I know how difficult it is. I mean, with recovery and the recovery process, there are many really tried and true right. ways to mm -hmm. recover, you know, and I, I'm not going to get into those because they're the vast. And, but as far as mental health, you know, it's very individualized. I mean, that yeah. mostly medication, any hospital, that's their treatment protocol is yeah. medication. So is there something? Different? And like you said, it's very limited too. Right. Yeah. There's not. So I can't, I mean, if you're thinking specific to mental health, you know, there are little like Parkland Medical Center has a mm -hmm. behavioral health unit that's been very effective, mm -hmm. but it's such a short term. Oh, Go through the emergency room is the only way you can get in there. Um, and, and other than Rattleboro Retreat, which has been, you know, reduced mm -hmm. to the capacity, not able to do the things they used to do for whatever reason. So it's very, extremely limited. Oh, yeah. And so if somebody presents to a hospital with, you know, uh, mental health issues, unless Frankly, they're, they're reporting that they're at risk of harming themselves or somebody else. The likelihood of them getting admitted is very low. Right. Additionally, uh, once they are admitted, as soon as they're stabilized, as soon as they're no longer reporting you know, a risk of hurting themselves or anybody else, they're going to be discharged. Where are they going to be discharged? Generally, without an aftercare plan. If they have one, it's probably not outstanding, whereas most of my referrals day to day are coming from hospital psych nice. units and BHUs. So they're stabilizing individuals and then stepping them down to, you know, a 30, 60, 90 day program like ours where people can stay for 90 days. Now you've got somebody, we have psych NPs on site um, seven days a week. They get a full psych assessment. We can adjust meds. We can find out what their baseline is. We can do labs to figure out if their medications are at therapeutic levels in their bloodstream. So you treat in every possible way. Oh, absolutely. So there's no specific, and, and obviously it's individualized. There's... Right. Yeah, very much so. And they're tinkering with meds. We're, our goal is not to put people on more meds, um, but at times if one medication and they're experiencing um, active psychosis and their current medication isn't effective, we can take that away and try a different one or add. Again, goal is not to add more medications, but we want to get these folks do well, they all agree to medication? No, because we because that's a problem that I've had with clients right. that in that well specific disorders. Uh, well, a lot yeah. of people don't believe they have a mental health issue. Right, that's right. So yeah, that's a struggle at times. Medication compliance is um, at times difficult, particularly I think with um, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, yeah. and any of the schizophrenic disorders, yeah. because the medications can be very sedating. So you get somebody stabilized yeah, right. in a 90-day program, they're on the medication, they're compliant, but they feel kind of like sedated. Well, tired of dys right. well, dyskinesia and all I have a other. lot of clients that who are bipolar and may experience manic episodes that actually enjoy them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because what you can accomplish to a manic episode is... You're up for 48 hours yeah. going a mile a and minute. They, they miss it. Yep. They miss it. So, Or they start feeling good. And say, no, I don't need this anymore. So my, I had an aunt. She's yeah. she's in the book, yeah. schizophrenic, and she would take medication. She'd be hospitalized. Yeah. She'd take medication, yeah. then she'd. I don't need medication. I'm they actually then, created a lot of injectables now because yeah, of the monthly because of because of the non-compliance specifically around schizophrenia. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's the biggest issue. That's why we see. Do you do that up there? 
We do monthly injectables, yeah. Nice. We can administer and order. A lot of these things are coming from specialty pharmacies. They're not easy. Well, and it's good because you can see over a period of time instead of like a couple of weeks and then they're gone and you don't know. Yep. But now you've got to have supportive family in place. You've got to have loved ones who who are there to not necessarily make sure that these well support. Uh, they're like, yeah, they need support. They need support, and so um, yeah. I have another question. Um, I know you talked about inpatient up in Canterbury. Do they have an outpatient program up there, or can people attend online? Is there? Um... It's a great question. So um, the reason we're able to keep individuals in treatment for up to 90 days is because we offer a full continuum of care. So we, we have detox if, if people need it. Residential, that's your traditional kind of 28-day treatment. Um, but we have a PHP, partial hospitalization, and then IOP, intensive outpatient. So those are traditionally delivered in an outpatient setting where you drive in day to day or you get the services virtually. Where that is an option, people can drive um, to our program and engage and then drive home at night. But we also offer and provide the recovery housing, keep them in a controlled setting, now we can monitor if they're taking their meds and administer the medications. Um, and it just, there aren't the distractions that they might get at home, the temptations yeah. that they might get at home. So when they're with us for 90 days, as opposed to driving back and forth. Building a positive habit. Yeah. What about people coming out of um, jail or, or court, being court ordered to attend a program? Yeah, we work so closely with the jails, parole, probation offices. I mean, literally every day I'm looking at the census and who's admitting um, in multiple, multiple uh, jail uh, admissions, particularly Cheshire County. I mean, it really uh, all Valley does Street. go hand in yeah, hand. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've we work so closely with uh, the case managers at the jails. Again, probation, parole offices as well. One topic we've always just skirted. I wanted to bring it up in one particular interview. Incarceration oh. versus treatment. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't make it to that. Because we, we didn't have time. It wasn't right. that we wanted but, to avoid but it. But yeah, we mean, our backgrounds both legal legal and um, mm. addiction-wise. We, we know that if, if jails were created to be treatment centers. Instead of money makers. Yeah. 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 It would right. reduce recidivism for sure. Sitting in jail as a nonviolent offender, yeah. um, somebody who you know is using fentanyl is doing nobody any good. Right. They need to be in a, in a treatment setting. I would I would even go further than that. Say that it's somebody almost any crime, right. because it doesn't serve society. Mm -hmm. Never mind the person, because they get out and they're the same exact. Right, you know, and they have you, the same mindset. And we go same. and we talked about this before, and then you can't give them an opportunity to better their lives mm -hmm. because they can't get a loan. They can't get a house. They can't go to They can't college. get a job. They can't get a job. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you, I've seen so many success stories from a lot of these men and women who've been incarcerated, some of them for many, many years. And especially you'll see it in the recovery community, um, people like making something of themselves, really changing. Well, Love and, to and, him. And, yeah. which is true. And I've, I mean, I wasn't in jail. Yeah. I had plenty of arrests when I was younger, but because, you know, but I had to work extra hard, yeah. you know, and that's the right. thing. And I didn't even have, you know, all that stacked against me well, in terms think, of record, you know, having that. I think it's, I mean, the continuum of the, the pendulum is, it's really slow turning. I think it's really, really changed. I mean, we, 
talk about law enforcement's view of addiction, there was a time when us against them. In fact, I recently worked with a guy who does some business development stuff, and he's law enforcement, and he particularly said, we can't put cops in with those people. I'm like, <laughs> so what I said to him, and I said to others, I said, cops are people too. Yeah. And at some point, and at some point, you weren't going to be a cop anymore. You're, you're, you're just a average, person. You're just a person. Right. Integration. Especially if you're important. in jail, then you're, you're a right. criminal. You're a right. cop being a criminal. Exactly. But you're not a so, cop anymore. You're... Yeah, it's just the, we, we still have a lot of stigma. We yep. were talking a little bit about stigma. It's still out there. It absolutely is. So it? I didn't mean to bring up that no. whole, because we, we could get off on a tangent. We on can. That. We can. What, but... what is it? Do you actually, are you on the ground? You said you drive around. Um, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the people that you're admitting, or are you talking to? Not frequently. I don't talk frequently to the people who are admitting. I'm primarily working with hospital social workers. Somebody okay. showed up to the hospital. They've been admitted for um, psychiatric issues, or they need to be detoxed, and they'll call me. Hey, Tony, got this gentleman here. He has New Hampshire Medicaid, or hey, he has Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, can we get him into treatment? And then from there, the, the process unfolds extremely rapidly. We call, do a very brief assessment, and as soon as the patient's ready to discharge, uh, we could frequently send a driver to go pick them up, no. get them to treatment. So you we do could pick send people an Uber. up? Oh yeah, oh. send an Uber. Um, I do that. Yeah. I, well, so Green Mountain, I, I had told you earlier, I love the pro the program. I love the fact that they get into the fourth step, mm -hmm. and not necessarily because of AA, because I'm, you know, I I do I use AA, but I don't think it's, you know, the only way. But because people get the opportunity to see those things in themselves that are blocking them off from mm -hmm. who they really are, you know, well, like even when you're dealing with trauma, right? You Absolutely, have to, you have to deal you have with to, your stuff, right? You have to get yeah. rid of your stuff. Yeah, you have to, to talk about what's. But you been... have to know what it is, right? Yeah. You got to be able to identify. So isn't that a fourth step? That's exact. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. No, that's exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like yeah. that's. Yeah. It's all very relative. Yeah. Agree. So I, yeah. I, I really appreciate that about Green Mountain. I don't know. Maybe I think uh, we're running but, out of time. But can you? I just would love to hear about how you came to be doing that. Do you? Are you privy to that information? Uh, the 12 steps? Uh, well, no. The fourth step, or the the way they do it at Green Mountain. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think the founder. Um, got sober in AA and really believed in that model. Mm -hmm. um, plus, once you leave treatment, it's like exactly you don't get better in 30 days. Yeah. Right. You've got to return. They say connection's the opposite of addiction. And mm -hmm. so AA has this huge community of people who have recovered and do recover. So it's like the, the best or the most accessible peer right. recovery out there. Or at there. least a good place to start. Good place to start. So that's how he got sober. So then he implemented this curriculum around the 12 steps. It's now um, evidence-based, yeah. clinical, recovery, education, skills, training. So we're so we there is a portion of the curriculum um, that has like 12-step recovery in it. Yeah. People who are coming out of Green Mountain are the most well prepared for the next step in their recovery yeah. than I think any program in in the country, frankly. And well, I hear it all the time. Them. You yeah. introduce them to every. Album. I mean, I've been sober for a very long time, and I sponsor a lot of people. I brought a lot of people through AA, mm -hmm. the steps through AA. So, I I believe that to be true, just based on yeah. my own experience. That yeah. people coming out of Green Mountain have been. One thing I think is important, Tony, before we close sure. is 
How do people get in touch with you? How do people get in touch with Green Mountain? I think if you want to just, uh, or how do people seek services? Yeah. Well, um, well, you're certainly welcome to call me if, if you need help. If you have a loved one who needs help, if you, if you want me to talk to a loved one, I'm happy to do that. Uh, connect well with individuals. You can call me 603-860-3839. I'll, I'll literally talk to anybody. Um, additionally, you can call admissions, 855-733-0808. It's open 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Um, doing 24-hour admissions daily, so you could admit at 2 a.m. Um, we just need to get in touch with you before 10 p.m. So, but very accessible treatment. Awesome. Well, Tony, thank you. Glad to have you. Yeah, yeah it was exciting. Be. It was really great. Great sharing your experience. Thanks for having and, me. And your information. So please continue to tune in. Just remember, we are here to provide resources. If you are in crisis, dial 911 to seek services. Call 211. And if you are suicidal, call 988, the Suicide Crisis Line. Don't forget to ask for help, seek support, and please don't do this recovery thing alone. Because the opposite of addiction is connection. Connection. Connection is key. expressed in this presentation are those of the producer and those appearing in this show and do not necessarily represent the views of Dairy Cam, the town of Dairy, or any of its staff or affiliates.